This is episode 334 of Optimal Performance with our guest, Dr. Dale Bredesen. This is his return appearance. He came on episode 173 to talk about his one of three books called The End of Alzheimer's. And now he's here to talk about his latest book, which is entitled The First Survivor of Alzheimer's, Stories of Alzheimer's Recovery. Dr. Bredesen is an internationally recognized expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases. Dr. Dale Bredesen's career has been guided by a simple idea that Alzheimer's as we know it is not just preventable, but reversible. And we talk specifically on how that happened. In his book, he outlines the stories of seven different people who reversed Alzheimer's. You know, if any of you have experienced Alzheimer's firsthand, some of your loved one was lost to cognitive decline. Uh, if you know somebody who's lost someone to Alzheimer's, it's gut wrenching. It's lonely. It's scary. Um, it's uh, it's really a, it's really a scary thing. And uh, the bright side is is that it's preventable and reversible. And so we talk specifically about some of the key mechanisms. We talk about the four groups of inputs that can affect or expedite cognitive decline. We talk about the fact that if you have the gene APOE4, if you have two copies, it means that you have a 50% or greater chance of developing Alzheimer's. But again, there is so much useful information in this episode, and he outlines so many things that are so aligned with what this podcast is all about, which is to empower people to take their health into their own hands and to live optimal in their life for the longest they possibly can so that you can be stronger and smarter and have a great lifestyle and be healthy, wealthy, and wise well into your hundreds. And this episode is right on target. Dr. Bredesen is eloquent. He's thoughtful. He's really a pleasure. And I know that you're going to get a lot out of this episode. I have a request. Please share this. Share it on social media. Share the link on Facebook. Share it on Instagram, on Twitter. Tell your friends and family about this because this is the third leading cause of death in the United States. And it is totally preventable and reversible. So please do me a favor, share this episode with the people that you care about, and also leave me a review. Wherever you listen to this podcast, please just drop me a review. Tell me that you like this. It really does help encourage me. I'm going to start reading um, reviews uh, on the podcast, and I'm going to start with uh, with uh, one of the latest ones, which was, absolutely love this podcast. Every episode is very motivating as well as informative. Thanks, Sean. Keep it up. That was from Cameron underscore six. I really appreciate you. I thank you for tuning in every single week, sometimes twice a week, to uh, keep sharp, learn techniques and, and ideas that will help you live your best life. That's what I'm here for. That's part of my mission in life is to help people elevate their consciousness and elevate their health. So please uh, support me in this way. Quick note, we are just about ready to take the next phase in what we were calling the virtual biohacking assistant. We're going to be calling it something else these days, but it is almost ready. So those of you that participated in the pilot study really appreciate that. For those of you that are interested in customizing your own health protocols specific to you, that's right, specific to you, not just men, not just women, not men 35, 54, you. Please send me an email, sean at seanmccormick.com, and just say, keep me in the loop, and I will loop you in into this incredible platform that we're getting closer and closer to rolling out. Thank you again for listening to this episode. You can find me on Instagram at McCormick. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Dale Bredesen. Welcome, everyone, to the Optimal Performance Podcast. My name is Sean McCormick. I'm a life coach, performance coach, 
wellness entrepreneur, and it's my pleasure to bring to you every single week the world's leaders in the field of performance so that you can live your life at its most optimal level. Plus, cutting edge ideas so that you can stay ahead of the curve in an ever-changing world. Let's dig right in. Performance and the protocols that are most helpful for preventing decline are virtually identical. So the reality is doing the right thing, getting the best performance when you're young and as you're getting older actually helps you tremendously to avoid the very problems that we get into as we age. So I think that there's a real message there for your listeners. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely proactive people and, and, yeah. and knowing that the things that we're talking about every single week are actually helping them to avoid cognitive decline in the future is such a such an important uh, message to resonate. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, well, I, I, I press cord record already. So we are, we are cool, off, cool. off to the races. Uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen, if you wouldn't mind, um, just sort of, uh, uh, giving us a really high view of, of what this new book is all about and how it's formatted. Yeah, great point. So this new book is called the first survivors of Alzheimer's and everyone's aware that there hasn't been anything for Alzheimer's, and we got the first positive results published back in 2014. We published 100 examples in 2018, well-documented, and then just this year we published uh, the, the uh, public posted on MedArchive on the results of our clinical trial showing unprecedented improvement. So I really wanted to get something out because the thing that really compels me the most is the stories from the people, the actual people who say, yeah, I was told that I was going to die by my doctor. And then um, I started doing a protocol and I got better and I'm you know, back at work or I'm back better than before, that sort of thing. So the stories from these people. So I actually asked seven of them, you know, would they consider writing their own stories? And then, of course, I have intros, what's going on in the field and then more about uh, improving normal cognition. I have a whole chapter on that in the book. Um, and then additional parts, updates to the protocol that we developed. Uh, but just seeing the stories from these people and what it felt like and then how they did it, how they actually, uh, what did they change in their lives to get better? And so we're seeing this better and better as an, a better understanding of what Alzheimer's actually is. And the fundamental nature of this disease has been what's been missed. Everyone's saying, well, take away the amyloid or take away the tau or take away the reactive oxygen species or, you know, take away the misfolded proteins. They're missing the crux. They're missing the fundamental nature of what Alzheimer's actually is. And we now understand that it is essentially an insufficiency. Just as you'd have a deficiency of vitamin C or vitamin D, this is a more complex insufficiency which affects an entire neural plasticity network. And so you have to look at the dozens and dozens of different things that are critical for that network. But virtually everyone who's got some cognitive decline and people who don't realize it often, they're normal cognition, but they're not doing as well as they could be, are actually going to do much better by addressing these critical things. So now we understand much more about the disease and we see many more people. In the trial, 84% of the people actually got better. And you may have heard with the recent drug, uh, nobody got better. What happened was the, the natural decline in one study at one dose was slowed by 22%. In the other study, it was actually worse. So, uh, so that's, you know, that, that's the best we can do with a drug right now. 
Whereas in our study, we're actually getting people to get higher scores to do better. So just reading these wonderful stories from these people, there's a woman from New York, brilliant lady who went to Harvard, who watched her grandmother die, watched her father die, uh, and then talks about what happened with her when she developed the similar symptoms. And it's, I have to say, it's really heartwarming, not only to read the stories, but then also to see what they did and to learn from those. Yeah, well, this is, you know, uh, a, a key part of, of personal optimization, health optimization, performance right. optimization is is doing a bunch of things and, and not doing a bunch of other things to optimize all of your systems. And and it's clear, uh, well, now through uh, through the, the research that's published is that there is no silver bullet, That right? I mean, there there's not just one thing. It's not... You know, I'm sure that there are lots of different factors that that, that come yeah. into this, but uh, the fact that they're now releasing a drug that that doesn't actually make people better, I think, is 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 so terrible, and and it's nice to know that you have developed these protocols, these number of things to look at in order to in order to boost cognition and to and to and to make people better can you walk us through some of those uh some of those key factors that that people should be aware of that that lead to alzheimer's absolutely and you know as you and i were just talking about a couple of minutes ago what actually prevents and reverses cognitive decline is virtually identical to what gives you optimal performance with your cognition and similarly what actually prevents and reverses Parkinson's, especially early on, is very similar to what gives you the best motor outcome. That is all about motor modulation. So yeah, there's a set of things that drives this network, which is why the theory part is so important and it fits so beautifully with the cognition. And so if you look at an equation for the, the probability of developing Alzheimer's is really related predominantly to four groups of things. So anything that's causing inflammation that affects your brain. So this can be from your mouth, can be from P. gingivalis, from poor dentition, it can be from herpes simplex, can be from your sinuses, uh, various mold species, it can be from a leaky gut, uh, it can be from having Lyme disease, all these things that cause chronic inflammation. You can literally trace the molecular pathways from the activation of a molecule called NF-kappa B into the nucleus of your cell to changing the production of the amyloid that we associate with Alzheimer's disease. So it's a beautiful connection there. So we have to look to see what can we do. People often talk about anti-inflammatories. Well, yeah, that's part of it. But we also want to know what's causing the inflammation. Is it the food you're eating? Is it a poor gut situation that you have? You know, is it that you're not getting enough detox? What have you? So that's the first piece, inflammation. Second piece, toxicity. And these are three different types of toxins. So these are things like inorganics, things like mercury, air pollution, things like that. So those of us who are in the California fires, we are increasing our risk by being this, in this poor air quality. Second one is organics, things like formaldehyde, benzene, toluene, glyphosate. These are all issues. And then the third one is biotoxins, things like ochratoxin A and trichothecenes and things like that. So we have to deal with inflammation. We have to deal with toxicity. And then the third one is energetics. And that's blood flow, which is why exercise is so critical. Blood flow, oxygenation. So you want to know if you have things like sleep apnea. Third one is mitochondrial function. And the fourth one 
uh, is uh, the, the fourth one after mitochondrial function is ketosis. So getting yourself mm. into some mild ketosis actually very helpful. A plant-rich form is actually seems to work better because it's got the additional detox and it's got, but it can be meat and fish and, and some of that as well and eggs and things like that. If you want to be a vegetarian, that's fine. You want to not be a vegetarian, that's fine. You, but you want to have obviously clean protein. Um, and then the final one is trophic activity. And so it's uh, three things in the trophic activity. It's trophic factors, uh, nerve growth factor, BDNF, things like that. It's hormone optimization, things like estradiol, testosterone, progesterone, pregnenolone, thyroid, things like that, DHEA, all of those. And then the third one is the nutrients, things like vitamin D, which, as we know, very important for preventing COVID uh, poor outcomes and very important for preventing Alzheimer's. And by the way, it's interesting. There are a lot of parallels between what happened with the pandemic, with COVID-19 and Alzheimer's. In fact, just to put it in perspective, we've had, as you know, now over 600,000 Americans who have died from COVID-19. And for perspective, almost 100 times that many will die from Alzheimer's disease of the currently living Americans. So in fact, the Alzheimer's pandemic dwarfs the COVID-19 pandemic, as bad as the COVID-19 pandemic has been. But interestingly, in both of these illnesses, COVID-19, where it's a virus very clearly, Alzheimer's, where it's, it's not a virus, it's actually all these different factors that are critical. And so with both of these, you have a situation where your innate immune system, which is inflammation associated, is on. And as you'll recall, people were dying left and right of what? Cytokine storm in COVID-19. Well, it turns out in Alzheimer's, you have the same source of cytokines, but in fact, it's much slower. So it's a cytokine mm. drizzle hmm. that is killing you instead of a cytokine storm. In both cases, your adaptive system your T cells, your B cells, your ability to deal with specific pathogens is suboptimal. And so you've got this continued activation of the innate system and a chronic inflammatory state. In one case, of course, with COVID-19, much more acute, and one with Alzheimer's, much more chronic long-term. But very, again, it's very much of an analogous process. So in both cases, we want to give you a good adaptive immune system. You'll do better with your COVID-19 and you'll reduce your risk for Alzheimer's disease. So those are all key pieces. And then now we have to take that, that knowledge, those four big factors and translate those, just as you said, what are the critical things? So in fact, the good news is you can deal with all of these things. We get what we call a cognoscopy. So it looks at all the different pieces. So for each person, we can determine what are all the factors. And typically we find 10 to 20 different factors in people who actually have cognitive decline, people who are simply there for prevention. Typically it's more like three to five. It's not as many factors, um, just as you would guess. And so it is critical to know where do I stand? And you can fix this with some of the things, diet, exercise, sleep, stress. Um, addressing stress turns out to be really critical for optimal cognition. I've actually, as a scientist, been surprised at how something I thought was just part of everyday life and not a big deal turns out to be quite important. And we see people all the time who are getting worse because mm -hmm. of this chronic ongoing stress. And then brain training, um, specific supplementation, and then detox. And again, you know, I was taught that when I was in medical school that, you know, toxins were things that caused disease occasionally with an overwhelming toxin. Like you had 
mercury toxicity, massive amounts of mercury, or you had manganese toxicity. But what's really much, much more common is chronic mild toxicity. And you now have this combination. You've got some biotoxins, you've got some organics, you've got some inorganics. And over time, it simply exceeds your ability to get rid of these, to metabolize, excrete, uh, and, and uh, you know, reduce these. And, and so as people have pointed out, it's actually a good idea to see where you stand. And some people, of course, will have a genetic predisposition to being poor detoxifiers. Mm. So also helpful to know that. Things sneak up on you. And so uh, addressing those, those seven things, diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training, supplementation, and detox, very, very helpful. And the great news is, as I mentioned with the trial, 84% of the people got better. And the, the even better news was the few people who didn't get better in the trial, we could see why. We could see. So one of them, a simple example, exposure to massive mycotoxins in her home. Mm -hmm. She said, well, I'm not getting it fixed and I'm not leaving the home. Well, okay, no surprise. She didn't get better. Um, so as long as you're willing to identify and address the very things that are causing the problem, and that's the great news. We now know we can figure out for each person, pretty much every single person. There are occasional ones where it's not clear, but for the vast majority of people, if we do the right testing, we can determine what is causing their decline or their risk for decline, which is why we recommend you know, everybody, as you get into your late 30s and early 40s, think about getting a, quote, cognoscopy. Get on some prevention, especially if there's any family history of neurodegeneration, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or Lewy body, things like that. Get on active prevention. Let's find out what's causing your risk. And we're looking at how we can now launch a very large-scale prevention program so we can really move the needle. So instead of having 45 million Americans, and that's how many of the currently living Americans will develop Alzheimer's uh, over their lifetimes. Um, instead of having that, we can really knock it down. Imagine we could prevent, you know, 80 or 90 percent of the Alzheimer's. I mean, think of the families that would help. Think of the people could do more productive work. Just fantastic. Just going to interrupt really quickly for an announcement from one of our sponsors and then right back into the episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Fume. Fume is the best way to quit smoking or quit vaping naturally. It replaces the hand-to-mouth habit. Uh, it's got flavorful blends from plants that we know. It uh, curbs nicotine cravings, and it's also a stress reliever. I love this thing, and it's made from this really great Canadian wood. There's no electronics to it. It's, it's a really simple and cool design, and it really is a nice sensation you know, to, to puff on something like peppermint while you're trying to focus and work. Uh, it, there's a bunch of benefits, and uh, it's natural. I love it. It's really cool. And uh, what you can do is you can go to Breathe Fume. That's breathefum.com forward slash OPP, and that will get you 10% off of your order. You know, if you have a hand-to-mouth thing, if you bite your fingernails, or if you, you know, like to smoke or you chew on pencils or whatever, this is an excellent alternative, and it's also giving you essential oils that are good for your respiration, for clarity, for performance too. Ben Greenfield loves it, and uh, I know you will too. Okay, back to the episode. The, the lifestyle factors are are interesting because uh th it helps it helps everything if you've got if you've got diet uh sleep stress if you've got plans <laughs> for yep. that if you have that stuff managed and dialed in and organized 
and you're doing all of the things that we talk about on this podcast week after week after week, you're going to improve yourself. One of the things that I that I don't know much about is uh, the brain training. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by brain training? Yeah, it's a great point. And so interestingly, one of the things that we found is that some form of stimulation, and again, no different than when you go and you're you know, pressing weights or you're going, you're doing your curls or whatever, some form of stimulation, again, like aerobic exercise, et cetera, for your brain turns out to be helpful, helpful both in reversal and in prevention. Um, and I recognize a lot of people say, well, look, I'm just going to do a couple things and that'll prevent it. Well, find out what are your major risks, because for some people, you can exercise all you want. If you've got high mycotoxin exposure, that's not, not helpful. So the bottom line for brain training is that it turns out that there are certain exercises that they're often, interestingly, they're often speed of processing related. Some of them are memory related. And there's a wonderful professor from UC San Francisco, Professor Mike Mersnick, who was the, you know, the, the original father of brain training. And he showed with his experimentation over many years that there are specific things, and it's not just random things, there are specific things that seem to be more helpful than others and one of them is increasing speed of processing. Another one is things like memory trials, executive function. There's something that they call a double decision, which is a, essentially a recognition, a rapid recognition program that they use. And there's some nice data showing that people who did double decision were reducing their risk for cognitive decline even 10 years later. Just amazing. And so no question that this form of stimulation. Now, there are other forms. People use things like light stimulation, sound stimulation at specific frequencies, um, magnetic stimulation, microcurrent stimulation at specific frequencies. And it does seem to increase your production of these growth factors. You know, you're stimulating a system. And as long as the system's not broken, you're actually getting a very nice effect. So brain training turns out to be quite helpful. And they've used this as a monotherapy. I'm not crazy about monotherapies because it's kind of like saying, what's the one um, instrument that makes the orchestra? Well, you can take, you know, you got to have the timpani, you got to have the clarinets, you got to have the violins, all that. You know, you, there's not one of them that makes the orchestra. You're, you've got this beautiful, complex brain that is coordinated and it's coordinated for your cognition and it's another subsystem is coordinated for your strength and another one for your motor modulation and each there are diseases going along with each one of these things that does that is not working so yes you want to you want to use that as part of an overall program when you've got the right hormones and you've got the right trophic factors etc Brain training is wonderful. Can you can you give us an example of a you know speed of processing brain training? Is there a platform or a site that that does it really well? Yeah. Uh, so there's something called Hawkeye, which is on. So so I should go back to Professor Mike Mersnick, who set up what's called Brain HQ, uh, and there are others. But you know the the problem is some of these other programs they haven't done the basics. They haven't shown. They haven't published their data to mm -hmm. say. Yeah, I mean, it's not brain games. Sounds good. Um, but there's no evidence that it might work. Yeah, it might be fine, but there's just no evidence pro or uh, or con for this. Within his case, they have evidence. They've published over 130 uh, articles on these various approaches. And, and one of the ones they use, which often uh, people start with, is called Hawkeye. And what it does is it actually shows you um, the essentially you're looking at a specific site and it's got these different 
uh, birds around and you have to very quickly identify the one that is different. Um, and, I, and, and so then, of course, they're now pushing you to go faster, faster, faster. So you, you've got better peripheral vision, et cetera. Now, by the way, uh, one of the people who actually was really excited and does Brain HQ and, and says it's really helped his peripheral vision and his speed of processing is Tom Brady. So uh, Tom Brady, as you know, as a quarterback, a highly, highly successful quarterback, uh, swears by that sort of approach. So again, it's you're driving your brain. You don't want to do it to the point that it's actually giving you stress because stress is one of the key damaging agents to your brain. But you want to push just like anything else. You want to get that mild hormesis. You want to get right kind of the edge, um, just like you'd go out and, you know, you don't start by running a marathon. You kind of work up to it. And the same thing with this. You work up on the brain training uh, and then you, you literally you can do it 30 minutes, three times a week. It's not something that takes a lot of time and slowly you'll improve over time. And it does drive your brain to improve its speed of processing. Yeah, that's a great reference. I mean, <laughs> make it make it make us uh, a reference to, you know, you know, arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. Uh, the guy, the guy doesn't seem to age either, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. Um, one of the, one of the, the, the sections or sort of a theme in, in, in your, in your work is what it's like to have Alzheimer's and, 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 and that really was, was interesting to me because I've never heard anyone characterize what it's like, what it feels like. So um, obviously, since this this is you know this has been a major part of the work that you do in the world, what what sort of surprised you do, doing sort of a deep dive with these seven individuals? Uh, what surprised you about what they told you about what it's like to have Alzheimer's? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was. I guess there are a couple things. And I would say, you know, because of the fact that there hasn't been anything to do about it, there hasn't been a really effective medicine, everything in this field is backward. You know, now we're kind of having to go and change everything. So, for example, people will say, don't bother to check your genetics because there's nothing you can do about this anyway. Well, there is a specific gene, as you know, ApoE4 which is present in one quarter of the population. So about 75 million people have a single copy. If you've got no copies of that gene, that's three quarters of the population, your chance of getting it during your lifetime, getting Alzheimer's, is about 9%. It's not high, uh, but it's not zero. If you've got a single copy, it's about 30% chance you'll get it during your lifetime. If you've got two copies, and that's 7 million Americans, the vast majority of whom don't know it, your chance is well over 50%. It's more likely that you will get Alzheimer's than that you will avoid it. So everybody should know this and then be on active prevention. So what, what surprised me reading this, people, this, this is a disease that sneaks up on you. People will say, you know, I'm not that bad yet. Or they'll say, look, my spouse isn't perfect either. You know, this is a sort of common thing you hear. And so my argument is, yeah, then get, get both of you get checked out. Don't let this happen to you. And one of the big problems is what we call mild cognitive impairment. That's really hurt people and it's hurt the, the it's, it's hurt doctors to use that term. It's like saying mildly metastatic cancer. It is a late stage of the problem. So you go through four major stages. There's a stage where you're asymptomatic, which you'd call pre-Alzheimer's. There's a stage where you have SCI, subjective cognitive impairment, where you know there's something wrong 
that's already years. It takes 10 years to go through that stage. So in fact, that's already relatively far along. So that, and that's something we can reverse virtually 100% of the time. So get in early. Then when your doctor tells you, you have mild cognitive impairment, MCI, that should be called relatively late stage Alzheimer's disease. It's the third of four stages. And then what we call full-on Alzheimer's, where people are losing activities of daily living, that should be called final stage Alzheimer's, because this is a really late. So that's really hurt us. So to hear these people saying, gee, you know, I was functioning fairly well, but then I was missing this. So, you know, one of the stories, a woman, uh, Deborah, who talked about um, she was trying to drive her children around and she would say things that were wrong. So she, uh, you know, the, she, she pulled into a, to pay a, um, she pulled in to pay, uh, to, to go on uh, in a specific lane. And she, so she was trying to yell carpool, uh, but she said conference call instead. So she'd get things wrong like this. She'd mix up things like the name of her pets, which I've heard many times before. There are certain things. She'd have trouble recognizing people's faces. She would go to a reunion or go to something at the kid's school, and she wouldn't be able to recognize. And these are these are happening for years before people actually get. Then she finally went to a major university on the East Coast and, and actually got tested. And they said, you know, yeah, you've got some testing that's, that's not right here. So she was already entering MCI, which is, again, the third of the four stages. And, and it, it's at the time when doctors are still telling you, oh, you're not that bad yet. Now, she then went on the protocol and she documented very nicely as she got everything back as she was able to recognize faces again, as she was able to get the correct words, as her vocabulary expanded again, as she was able to help the kids with their homework once again. And so it's really, you know, it's really striking. One of the big things that we found is that people start this problem much earlier than we give it credit for. So we used to think of Alzheimer's as a disease of your 60s, 70s, or 80s. We now know that it starts 20 years before that. So it's really a disease of your 40s and even into the late 30s, you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s that is now being diagnosed 20 years later. It's just like if you have a cancer, that lump started five, typically five years before you have a diagnosis. It takes a long time. The good news for us is if you do the right things, if you get checked out, nobody should ever get this disease. That's the reality, and yet it is the third leading cause of death in the United States right now because people wait so long. They don't get on prevention. They don't do the right things, and so they get this complex insufficiency um, in your neuroplasticity network. So I was surprised by some of these early changes, and then I was also surprised by what the doctors said to them. So you know, one of the women uh, who talked about this Sally, and she, she talked about this wonderful story. She was in her late 60s. Um, she would forget to pick up her grandkids to take them, and she, she realized you know, something is really wrong here. She went in, and they showed, yes, you already have a positive PET scan for Alzheimer's disease. You have amyloid in your brain, which is one of the signatures of Alzheimer's disease, and you should go on a medicine that removes the stuff. And she went on, and each time she would get the medicine, she would get much worse, not better. And so after four injections, she finally said, you know what, there's something wrong here. And the doctors were like, well, no, this is just, just keep going here. And she's like, no, this is, this is hurting me. So she got off it, thankfully. Um, and then she switched over to the protocol we developed and she's done great. And her scores have become, she's gone from 24 to 30, which is a perfect 30 out of 30 score. It's done very, very well. 
so I think hearing these, the timing and, and what the doctors tell these people, uh, it, it, you can see how out of date this really is. That's, that's so unfortunate. I mean, uh, it's discouraging, right? Because we, we rely on the Western medical system to diagnose and treat. And, um, and rarely are you asked what your diet is or how you deal with stress or if you have, uh, you know, are you, are you doing new things in your life, learning new things and, and, and that, that's really it's discouraging, especially because there there there's so many like you, you the stats that you mentioned earlier about how many people forty million people alive today are going to going to experience Alzheimer's. You know how many baby boomers, how many aging baby boomers are getting right into that that zone where they're yeah. in the third or even fourth phase, and yep. they don't even know it. And there are things that they could do like right now, right away, little things, simple things, daily things to help, um, reverse it. Not, not just, not just, uh, slow, slow it down, but actually like you, like you just mentioned, improve their cognition and, and be able to find the words that they're looking for and remember the faces of their loved ones. That's uh, yeah. That's that's it. It just shines a light on how urgent this this issue is, you know. And then I don't know when they characterized type three diabetes. I don't remember when that was. Maybe a couple of years ago, where they came up with that. Uh, can you can you speak to that just briefly? Because I keep hearing that that just keeps coming up. Yeah, great point. Um, and this was actually suggested by a professor at Brown University uh, now over ten years ago. Uh, and the idea is that you know this is a many people with with Alzheimer's do indeed have insulin resistance. So is this really just a form of diabetes? And yes, for many people, it's one of the contributors. But the point is, you can get Alzheimer's without diabetes, you can get diabetes without Alzheimer's. So it's not the cause, but it is a, an important contributor and maybe the most common contributor. There are about 80 million Americans who have insulin resistance. So one of the things that we test of the many things that we check on people, we check to see whether they have insulin resistance. And you can look at simple things like fasting glucose and fasting insulin. Unfortunately, most doctors are not looking at fasting insulin. You need to look at both of those and preferably also with hemoglobin A1C. And you can make a very simple calculation for something called HOMA-IR, which tells you whether you have a degree of insulin resistance. And you want your HOMA-IR to be right around 1.0. As it starts drifting up above 1.3, up 1.4, 5, and then up into even 2 and 3, this is telling you that you have insulin resistance. What that means simply is that your insulin, when you're making it, is not exerting the same effect on your cells. And in fact, what's interesting, you can actually see the molecular changes in your insulin signaling. There are specific molecules downstream from the insulin receptor on your cells that actually undergo chemical changes that are literally turning down the volume. They have specific phosphorylation events at specific serines and threonines on something called IRS1, which is the dominant signaling molecule downstream from the insulin receptor. So you can literally see in people that they have turned down their response to insulin. And that's because they've had these chronically high insulins and chronically high sugars. And so this is definitely a contributor 
to Alzheimer's disease. And as I say, may, maybe the most common one. And so, yes, to, to some extent, there is a relationship to diabetes, but by no means is that the beginning and end of the story. It's one of the many contributors. Thanks for clarifying that. I, you know, I, 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 again, it goes back to lifestyle. And if your, if your diet relies on a sugar spike every hour and a half for you to feel like you don't have brain fog, that's, yeah. that's a problem. And, and, you know, the Western American diet is just so depleted of nutrients. We're just not getting, not getting the nutrients that we need from the food that we rely on. Even organic food is just way less nutrient dense than it was you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, it, it, it takes, it takes work. It takes, it takes, uh, it takes a lot of focus. It takes a, a fair amount of planning to make sure that your lifestyle is set up for, for not, not just health, but longevity and, uh, and, and keeping your brain sharp, um, into your old age. And, and because of, you know, the advances in medicine and longevity drugs and, and so forth, you know, especially within like the, you know, health optimization and sort of biohacker community, there's people talking about, you know, living into their 120s or 130s and having that become a, a very real prospect for many of us who have dedicated ourselves uh, to to living low inflammation and low stress and um, and getting all the nutrients. And so if, if your body, if your body is, is strong and fit and you do yoga and surf and eat clean and get lots of sleep, um, but you have this toxicity or you have your, you know, you have these, uh, inflammatory markers, these trophic factors working against you, man, if you're, if you're, if you're living until 110 or 115, 120, but your brain is declining, then it's, that's, that's no good for anybody. Yeah, it's a really good point. And so just actually a week ago, um, I was uh, presenting at a symposium back to back with Aubrey de Grey. And of course, Aubrey has spent his career looking at can we engineer negligible senescence, as he says. And so, yeah, you know, we'll see. There's a lot of work to be done on stem cells and all sorts of issues, protein folding and all these things. But meanwhile, um, you know, our goal is complementary to that. What we'd like to do is get everybody to 100. We, if we could absolutely ensure that everybody could have a hundred healthy years where you have a absolutely an excellent brain and an excellent body. And of course, so many people, uh, the big problem is their brain has fallen apart. And, and you know, one of the things that's really scary to me as a neurologist, when I was training, this was way back in the 1980s, we never saw people in their 50s who had Alzheimer's. You know, this was a disease we would see people in their you know, late 60s, 70s, 80s. We never saw people in their 50s. Now it's one of the most common things that we see is people in their 50s with Alzheimer's disease. So things have changed. And in fact, the epidemiological publications have shown the same thing. There has been an increase in the early onset Alzheimer's disease. So if we're all going to be assured that we can absolutely get to 100, we can avoid Alzheimer's, we can avoid cancers, we can avoid, avoid cardiovascular disease. As you mentioned, inflammation is one of the big players here leaky guts, you know, all the things that are associated with this vascular disease, et cetera, that we're going to have to address this. And we're going to have to make sure that we can look and, ma and make sure that each person is on an optimal program to get to 100. One of the things I'm excited about is, hey, we could go out and tell people, we can give you a guarantee that you will not develop Alzheimer's to some time. It might be to 75, 85, 95, what have you. 
but being able to give people a guarantee, get the right tests, get on the right prevention or earliest reversal, and you will not get this problem. I think that's where things are headed. And it doesn't come with a magic pill. <laughs> and it yeah, doesn't come, doesn't come yeah. with a magic pill. Exactly. So, so everybody wants a silver bullet. As we pointed out, it's really about silver buckshot. Yes, it's silver. You're still <laughs> going to target specific things, but you don't want to just target one thing. So yeah, you can prevent inflammation and then you know, the toxins may get you. Uh, or you can prevent uh, you know, inflammation and the energetics may get you. Uh, or the trophic support may get you. So you want to make sure that you have the buckshot, silver buckshot, targeting the right things, multiple of them, not just a silver bullet and think, oh, this is good enough. You know, any different than anything else you do in life. You know, if someone said to you, you know, you want to learn to fly? Okay, you just hold the wheel over to the right. That's all you do. It's like, wait a minute. It's not that simple. You've got to make the right adjustments at the right time. To, you know, to land and take off the plane appropriately. And no different with this, you know, this is a complex brain disease. Is there any wonder that a single molecule by itself is not going to be the optimal treatment? Right. One of the, one of the sections, one of the chapters in the book uh, is, is entitled Quantified Self. And this got me excited, of course, because this does get to the heart of where I think personalized and custom not just medicine, but health optimization. And, and even the language and the terminology has shifted. And, and, and again, those of us in the, in the health optimization world, you know, we're referring to uh, healthcare as sick care. And, uh, yeah. and now the focus is on measuring uh, all of these different things that you can, that are available to you, to each of us individually, privately, um, through businesses that, that that provide services that will help us actually know what's going on. Like you spoke to earlier about getting your genetic test to see if you have uh, you know genetic predisposition. And so uh, what, what I'd love to hear is you kind of elaborate on uh, the power of actually quantifying yourself so that you know where you stand, so that you know which sort of uh, uh, changes to make. Absolutely. And I'm really glad you brought that up because it's such a huge issue going forward. So wearables and social networking are going to be two of the most powerful tools we have to reduce the global burden of neurodegeneration, not only for Alzheimer's, but also for Parkinson's, Lewy body, things like that. So imagine that you had a car. You're not allowed to take your car in until it's literally broken down on the side of the road and can't go another five feet. That would be such a ridiculous way to go about. You want to go in for the 30,000-mile checkup. You know, want to know what the oil is. You want to know where your transmission fluid is. You want to know what your tire pressure is. That's what wearables are doing for us. And so now we can look. It's amazing what we can do that you couldn't do 5, 10 years ago. So now you can look at your heart rate variability, a great way to look at your vagal tone and your ongoing stress and I can see my own. I, I use an Apple Watch. Some people like other approaches. No problem. There are lots of great things. Fitbits and Aura Rings. Um, Dream 2, for you, you can actually look at your sleep stages. Um, you know, oxygenation at night, huge. So knowing these things. And, of course, CGM has been, I think, one of the most exciting ones, continuous glucose monitoring. You can see when you're spiking up, which is horrible for your brain. You can see when you're dipping down. We've got people who are waking up in the middle of the night not knowing why. Turns out, guess what? 
their diet's not so great. So what's happening is when they go to sleep, their sugar plummets. They get down in the 40s. Not good for your brain either. And so the, so the idea of being able to use Apple Watches and Aura Rings and the, you know, the Dream 2, as I mentioned, being able to look at your glucose, your ketone status. You can use you know, Biosense to look at ketone status easily. You can have an oximeter to look at your nocturnal oximetry, which is huge. So many people are dropping their oxygen at night. So being able to quantify these parameters, and of course, many of them are now going to be communicated so you can follow yourself and have a nice medical algorithm that's part of the job looking at these these computer-based algorithms there is so much that we can all do fairly simply to look at our physiological parameters again very helpful with our performance and very helpful with our prevention of future illness yeah for it's it, it's it's funny you know i i personally was was not really into the 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 health trackers for a while and for no other reason well a couple of reasons one of which was um you know i get paranoid about you know that pinging uh from something i'm on my phone you know i'm sort of paranoid about emf i'm currently wearing emf blocking underwear because i'm you know it's like i want to agree with you it's an issue right but but what what i found was that that even just having some sort of a health tracker, um, especially something that tracks your sleep, does encourage you to make subtle changes. And I think for a lot of people, uh, it, it could, you know, having a pedometer and knowing that you took, you know, 7,000 steps today is really great. Um, but, but, you know, making that switch, and I really encourage everybody to try to find one that works for you, find one that you like, an interface that works for you, whatever it may be. To actually know what's going on, to know what's going on in your sleep, what's your resting heart rate, uh, and to make those changes is is, is so critical. Um, one thing that I wanted to, to ask you about, because I was so struck by this video, um, and, and this is sort of uh, tangential, but I hope you'll follow me. Um, I saw a video recently, and they've been kind of cruising around the internet for a while, of, of a woman who was in late stage uh, Alzheimer's, and... Uh, they played music from her childhood. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you've seen it. I'm sure you got, you, you probably get sent it every single day. Um, can, can you speak, could you maybe set up that video uh, and, and maybe speak to a little bit about why that works or what's going on there? Yeah, great point. And there's a whole movie, you probably know, the story of uh, the whole finding that music has this interesting effect and it's called Alive Inside. And so we actually had someone who went out and actually took these people in nursing homes and actually played music. And as you pointed out, it should be from their era. That seems to be the one because, of course, it brings back the it, it brings back the memories of, of that era where they were growing up, where they were going to dances, you know, what have you. Now, the problem with this is that it doesn't actually impact your cognition. It doesn't make you get better from Alzheimer's. So, again, it's part of the overall story, but it's not the story. What it does is it stimulates essentially some dopaminergic flow. So it stimulates some enthusiasm, and um, it's through an area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. And so it does support you, and it gives people positive feelings. And you're right, people who are just sitting there looking like they're, you know, that they're just completely, uh, uh, you know, next to dead, 
and you're putting these, uh, you know, you're putting these earphones on them and playing music from their era, and they really come awake, and they'll start snapping their fingers, or they'll start dancing around, or they'll start singing, or what have you, uh, recognizing this and really enjoying it. Um, I wish that that were enough to make people have improve their cognition, and unfortunately, it doesn't. But again, as part of an overall stimulation, it's absolutely fine, and that's that's what that's all about. And it, you know, it is great to see people um, who are getting some happiness. You know, one of the things again, as a scientist, the idea of someone telling me, well, part of the treatment is joy. It's like, yeah, well, what's the biochemistry of joy? Well, okay, yeah, there's dopamine there and things like that. Okay, I get that. But the but the surprise to me. As we went along from looking at cells that were dying related to Alzheimer's in a Petri dish to ultimately translating all these 30 years of research and 220 published papers, translating this into what actually makes human brains work better. Some of the things that I didn't know about and didn't believe in, yes, stress, yes, joy. Uh, ha, you know, when you lose joy in your life, it is one of the contributors to cognitive decline. And of course, depression is a huge issue. So getting people out of their depression, and of course, people have now linked depression to inflammation. So if you've got a leaky gut and you've got ongoing inflammation, you're increasing your risk for depression. So what's amazing, all these things that I kind of didn't believe in before, like joy and you know, depression, like, okay, you're sad, okay, whatever. You know, these things, they're now being linked with their own biochemistry, their own genetics, and it's being shown how we can utilize these pathways to make people get better. So fascinating, so fascinating. Uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to go back uh, just really quick to uh, the, the, quant the quantified self and the ability to yeah. track and get tests, you know, there's just so there's just so many options, you know, deuterium and um, you know stool tests, and and, and I won't oh, list yeah. them all. Um, but also when it comes to to tracking and knowing your your biometrics, um, if I had if I, if I had to pin you down and say, okay, what are the, what are maybe the three? You said continuous glucose monitoring was 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 a really really important one. What are maybe some other two or three off the top of your head that you think may be the most relevant for for cognitive decline in Alzheimer's? Yeah, such a good point. So, number 1, oximetry. So, you want to know when you go to sleep at night, are you dropping your oxygen down? We have people that, you know, didn't realize it until we tested this and they're dropping not just you should be 96 to 98% saturated. You know, I worry when people are at 88 um, we had one guy who came in at 71. I mean, this guy is, is almost dying at night when he's going to sleep because he doesn't realize his oxygen is dropping. And these are people with severe ones that typically have sleep apnea, but not all. Some have something called upper airway resistance syndrome. And there are other things as well. So that is critical to know. So I would say, number one, oximetry is huge. Number two uh, is heart rate variability because it does tell you if you're under chronic stress, and again, acute stress, no problem. That's part of life. You know, you get up and you got to run for the whatever. You got to run for the bus or you got to, you know, you got to run to get to work on time, whatever it is. Or your, your Zoom connection's not working, you know, whatever it is uh, ca causing that stress. That's a huge one. So looking at heart rate variability, but it's that chronic activation where you're actually, your heart rate variability is low for your age every day. And it is amazing. Just taking deep breaths, just, just, and you'll see then, you can see what happens to get your vagal tone going. You can see when you're doing things like yoga 
again, something I didn't use to believe, like yeah, yoga, so what, you know, uh, but it turns out it's actually quite helpful, um, yoga and meditation, very helpful for your blood pressure, very helpful for your vascular tone, very helpful for your heart rate variability, very helpful for your neuroplasticity. These things are critical. And of course, you know, getting out and exercising, all these things. So second is heart rate variability. And then the third one is ketosis. And so you can measure your ketones. You can either do it with a finger stick, no problem, um, or you can do it with uh, you can do it with a, a, a breathalyzer. Um, Biosense makes makes one. Um, the other ones haven't been so great yet. They the Biosense one engineered it so that they could get a more accurate reading, which I appreciate. Um, and uh, and by the way, none of these things that I recommend pays me anything. We're we're basically I'm I'm agnostic. Whatever works is what we want. The goal here is to get people better. And this has been a problem, as you know, that's been untreatable, incurable, nothing to do. Uh, we had a, a, just another example last week uh, where we were talking about a, a guy who had early Lewy body, um, very addressable. The protocol we use has worked very well. Before coming to our clinic, he had gone to a different clinic and they said, yeah, you have early Lewy body, nothing to do about it. Go home, go, go get in a support group because there's nothing you can do. And it's just a, such a horrible message. There, there's a tremendous amount if you know what's driving the problem. So again, glucose is critical, and yes, CGM is helpful um, in it, you know things like that, and, and also helpful to know if you're APOE4 positive. But if you had to get three, I would go back to the equation. It's those four big things. You want to know your energetics. That's why you want to know your oxygenation. You want to know your inflammation. You want to know your toxicity, and you want to know your trophic uh, support. So I would go with you know, getting your heart rate variability checked, getting your oximetry at night, and getting your ketone status. And many people will start saying, okay, the ketone's registering zero. But as you get into appropriate diet, a low-carb diet, which by the way, um, lots of publications showing that that is the best thing for cognition. Uh, at the same time, you don't want to starve yourself if you're already too thin. Be careful. You can go backwards by starving yourself too much. But getting yourself with some autophagy, with some mild ketosis, um, with you know a high-fiber, plant-rich diet with appropriate fasting periods, you'll get yourself up more to you know 0.5 to, to 2 in that range. For people who have actually have Alzheimer's or, or MCI. We try to get them to 1.0 to 4.0 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate. And you can simply take some exogenous ketones to help bump yourself up there. Because what's happening, you have to bridge a gap. When you have cognitive decline, you literally have a reduced utilization of glucose in your brain, especially temporal and parietal lobes. That's what the PET scans show. So this now tells us why, and this tells us what we can do about it. And ketones turn out to be very helpful. So I would say those are those are the biggest three. That's so great. It's so clear. The the uh, the, the the clarity, the specificity of what you're saying, I think, is so helpful for people. Yeah, I was going to ask about the exogenous ketones yeah. Um, because uh, th yeah, I, I just I just think that's such a cool such a cool. Um, invention just to, to be able to, to boost your ketones with some, you know, some esters or some salts. That's so, yeah. so cool. Um, and I should say just to, to, to jump in there for yeah. a second on, on the ketones, because there is a really critical point here. You, as you know, you can get endogenous ketosis and you can get exogenous ketosis. So you can take the ketones or you can drive yourself into ketosis. And here's the trick. 
when you, especially for those who are relatively thin and don't have a lot of fat to burn, if they try to start by driving themselves into endogenous ketosis, they often will take a step backward. So at the beginning, just use the exogenous ketones. If you've got no vascular issues, you can use MCT oil or you can use coconut oil. But if you've got vascular issues or you're APOE4 positive, which increases vascular risk, as you said, they've developed wonderful ones. I like one called KE1. Again, nobody pays me anything to say that. I happen to like it. It's a combination uh, of uh, ketone salts and ketone esters. But there are other ones. Some people like the esters because you tend to drive your ketones a little higher. Some people like the salts because they taste better. Um, so there are different ways to do this. But bridge that gap. When you have cognitive changes, it's telling you that you have an energy failure in your brain. And so the first thing we want to do is cure that energy failure. Then in the long run, we can get people into this mild ketosis. We can deal with their toxins, with their inflammation, uh, you know, with their trophic support, all those things. But I agree with you the invention of exogenous ketones has been huge. Another question that's, that's uh, again, a little tangential, but it's, it's of great interest to me. And obviously it's, it's you know, reaching uh, a cultural awareness is the use of psychedelics. Um, what, are your, yes. what are your thoughts on, on the benefits of, uh, of psychedelics for the brain? Yeah, this is a great point, and it's one, you know, the jury's still out on this. So here's the concern. So what you don't want to do is take so much of this stuff that you're actually damaging your cognition, which, which can happen if you're, if you're kind of overdosing. As you know, there's a lot of interest in microdosing. Will small amounts, and I think what's going to happen in the long run, there's some suggestion that these microdoses, things like microdoses of LSD, may actually be helpful. This may be part of a therapeutic armamentarium. And again, it's just to digress for a moment, we've been told over the years, there's no armamentarium, there's nothing you can do. And the answer is the opposite. There is a huge armamentarium for optimal cognition and for prevention of cognitive decline, which are virtually identical. And so, um, I, and I do think much, some of these microdosings are gonna be very helpful for this. We just, the data aren't in yet. Um, now, there are some simple things like just um, CBD oil, which isn't really, a, that's certainly not a psychedelic, but it helps people relax and sleep better and things like this. And there are some interesting, there's some interesting effects of these cannabinoid receptors on amyloid and on the brain itself. So there's certainly some interesting promise with these, whether things like ayahuasca are going to be critical for best outcomes remains to be determined. And I think you just have, at this point, Proceed with caution, um, but certainly um, it, it's been it's been interesting, and I think people are are going to over time report some very interesting results for these. Please don't get to the point where you're actually giving yourself, uh, you know, problems with with uh, cognition. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think time will tell, and and luckily, you know, there's some really great research going on, um, kind of all over the country and all over the world on the benefits of you know psilocin specifically for for the brain, not, not only, you know, anxiety and depression, which of course play a part in all of this, but you yeah. know, for, uh, for creating new, um, um, neural networks and, uh, yeah, it's, it's really exciting to me. And I think that, uh, I think that it sure would be, sure would be a hoot in if 15 years there are, you know, microdosing, 
uh, LSD prescriptions um, done done obviously in a in a safe and manageable and mature way. Um, before before we can you know direct people kind of where to go and so forth, um, what what's something uh, about the book about you know the process of of writing this that that really was new to you? You know you've kind of seen it all. You literally wrote the other book, you know, the end of Alzheimer's. What, what through this process of writing this book like really really stood out? Yeah, um, I think the the thing that stood out to me was that we're making progress. So if you look at the first book, the second book, and now this is the third one, you can see how we've progressed. So what's happened is we went outside the norm. So we really changed the view of what Alzheimer's is. And I talked about that in the first book, and we're still getting that. We're still getting all sorts of pushback from the establishment. Like, no, we don't believe it. It's all about amyloid. It's all about tau. So as a scientist, though, you, what you it has to be internally consistent. So if I say to you, Sean, this is all about an insufficiency, and you say, yeah, but what about these data that were published here? This shows that you're wrong. Then, okay, then I'm wrong. But what you have to come up with something that explains every single observation and that the acid test is when you use that model to get people better, they actually get better. And no other model has done this. So, but now, now that we know we're in the right ballpark, we're seeing that, aha, we can, and well, you just brought it up, things like microdosing of LSD, maybe that makes things a little better. Ah, maybe we're, we need to do earlier on treatment of some of these biotoxins. We're finding so many people who have mold-related toxins. And by the way, mold-related toxins is not even recognized by the establishment as a cause of Alzheimer's, even though we're seeing it all the time, we've published it, we make people better when we get rid of these toxins, and yet it's not even recognized as a cause of Alzheimer's. So we're seeing that now that we're in the right ballpark, we can begin to get you know, little increments of making things better and better and better. And seeing the people do that themselves, and we had one example, Julie, who wrote a wonderful story for the book. She's the seventh of the seven stories, and she writes about how she improved as she started adding things and started getting over the hump. But then after she'd been on for several years, and by the way, she's now been on for over nine years, doing absolutely great. I mean, nine years, she would be in a nursing home by now. She's doing great. And so she then had a little bit of a backslide about two years ago. And so we thought, okay, what are we missing? There's something out there. Again, that fits. If our model is right, it's going to tell us that there's something that's been missed. And sure enough, when she checked her innate system, it was going off. She was way off scale. Okay, why? What's causing this ongoing innate immune system activation? It turned out in her case to be Babesia, which is an organism that's actually a cousin of malaria. It's a parasite that you get from a tick bite. So what had happened is she had been bitten by a tick 10 years before, and she was treated for Lyme disease, but not for Babesia. Over 50% of the ones that carry Lyme also carry co-infections. The big ones are Babesia, Bartonella, uh, Ehrlichia, and Anaplasma. And so these ticks, the majority of them, carry something else as well. So she got treated appropriately. She had no Lyme, but she had, she'd been harboring this mild chronic Babesia for years. So now as she started getting treated for this Babesia, 
she started to do much better again. So we're seeing that, okay, this is telling us we're on the right track. We can begin to determine, even though people are complex, their brains are complex, they're all different, for each person we can begin to ferret out. Again, just the way you'd say one person is going to benefit more from a certain type of working out, another person is going to benefit from a different sort of approach. Uh, that is the same thing with cognitive changes. You've got to look for each person to get the optimal approach. And that's where this is coming into more and more focus. As I wrote this, you can really see it more and more clearly. Here, here, it has to be individualized. You know, that's, that's the way that, that, that medicine is going. The performance optimization is going. It has to be specific to you and not just specific to you, but specific to where you are now. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's at the heart of, of all, all that I do is, 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 is helping people figure out where they're at and where they want to go. And, uh, this has just been such a, such an eye opening conversation uh, you know, at the time that we're recording this, uh, the book is not available n- yet. Um, but can we just assume uh, where where should where should we send people? Yeah, August seventeenth, it will be out, um, and you can get it now on on uh, Amazon um, as a pre order. So it'll then be shipped to you when it's available on August seventeenth. So that's the easiest way to get it. You can also uh, pre order it from Barnes and Noble, from you know any place that sells books, uh, and and get it then. And, and where, where can people follow along with you? Where, where should they find you online? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on Facebook, uh, Dr. Bredesen, uh, and I'm also uh, on Twitter, and again, Dr. Dr. Bredesen. So any of those things, uh, drbredesen.com, uh, you can follow as well. Um, and I'm working with a group from Silicon Valley, Apollo Health. So you can also follow on Apollo Health Co. Uh, because, you know, the future of this is for us to have larger data sets. I mean, it's been amazing to me at how medicine hasn't interacted enough with Silicon Valley and the, and the, the digital community because there are huge amounts of data. And this old idea that you go to your doctor and the doctor writes you a little prescription for one molecule and that's supposed to fix everything is just, it's so out of date. And again, you know, the wearables, the social networking, the ability to collect larger data sets, this, yes. is, the way, this is the way the medical revolution is going. Yes, here, here. I happen to be working on something just like that with a with a uh, former ER doctor. So I'm. It's going to be super cutting edge. You know, I've been talking about it here to the listeners, so they know uh, we're working with working on the name now. But we we need we need to make it easy and fun for people to uh, learn about themselves, to learn where they're at in their health, to quantify it, and to take the right actions little by little, if you need to correct lifestyle factors uh, so that you can live your best life. And it has to be individualized. Anything short of complete customization is just inadequate anymore in my mind because the tools are all there. So excellent. Um, When you've got something like Babesia, you need to find it. You need to treat it. The good news is you can do a lot with some basics, but then you need to target things uh, to get you the best outcomes. Yeah, that that is that is a really nice example of how do we what's the what's the thing? What are we missing here? Right. <laughs> what are we missing here? Oh, it's this with a laser focus. Got it. Let's treat that and then back on track. Phenomenal. Right. Well, this is this has been such a great conversation. Uh, you know, Dr. Bredesen, I'm 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 a huge fan of the work you're doing and people 
uh, I think people are going to learn a lot from this conversation. And, and I, you know, I encourage everyone to, to read up on this, to learn and educate yourself uh, about these things because in, you know, inflammation, inflammation, toxicity, energetics, trophic factors, these are things that are just going to improve your life in every facet. It's Absolutely. you're going to be a happier, healthier person who lives longer and, uh, and, and it's going to improve your quality of life. So cool. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but I do have a, a, a final question, which is a fill in the blank question. I think actually the last time you were here, uh, it was a little bit different. So this will hopefully catch you, catch you off guard a little bit on purpose. Um, if you would, uh, fill in the blank, you can, this can be based on anything and everything that you know from, from your life and your work. Um, you can elaborate as much or as little as possible. Uh, but if you would fill in the blank, everyone would benefit from knowing their physiological parameters. Um, and, and I think this is something that very few people are doing right now. As you indicated, yes, there are some wearables. So people are, and you know, our daughter loves her aura ring, for example, and so she's tracking her stuff. But if everyone had a set of their physiological parameters, not just one thing, so it may take several things, some of the things that you and I talked about a few minutes ago, everyone would benefit from that because Improving those is going to reduce depression. It's going to reduce neurodegeneration. What's really happening to us as a society is that a hundred years ago, we were all dying of these simple illnesses like TB and pneumonia. And then, of course, HIV and things like that, where you knew it's a virus. And of course, unfortunately, the pandemic has led to the death from virus and many people. But the vast majority of us now are dying this long, slow death with depression and cardiovascular disease and cancers and Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerations. And these things take many years. That's the negative and the positive. The positive part is we can see them coming. So instead of saying, oh my gosh, I'm actually, I've been diagnosed with MCI, which is a late stage of Alzheimer's, and I've got to now see what I can do about it. If we instead said, oh, wait a minute, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, 29, I'm 32, 35, what have you, and I'm already beginning to see changes in my heart rate variability or in my blood pressure or things like this. And again, this goes back to some simply giving you a drug that prevents your body from having the, the hypertension that it's trying to generate is the most ridiculous thing. You need to know why you have that, and you need to know, let, let's address the things that are actually causing it. So I think having these physiological parameters just like everyone knows their cholesterol, okay. But you need to know your heart rate variability and your ketone status uh, and your in how you know how your sleep is doing, how much slow wave sleep you got, and how much REM sleep you got. There is so much we could do and so much of this chronic illness that could be prevented and reversed, especially early on. These things are easy to fix in the early stages. And unfortunately, our entire medical system, as you indicated, is centered around the idea, wait until you've had this for 20 years and you're really at the end stage and then come in and get a prescription. It's really a caveman approach to medicine. Yeah, it's not working anymore. And, you know, like Buck, Mr. Fuller says, you have to just create new models that make the yeah. old models obsolete. We can't, we've, we've tried this and it, it's great for a broken arm, but it's not going to get us where we want to go. Yeah. Absolutely. Phenomenal. Well, Dr. Bredesen, thank you so much uh, for joining me today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. 
Thanks so much, John. Great talking to you. Dr. Dale Bredesen. Wow. What, what an incredible researcher. What an incredible scientist to be able to, to, to really shed some light on an issue that is such a big deal for so many people. We're so many folks are affected by Alzheimer's in their lives and, uh, we've got some solutions now. So now we just need to make that wisdom applicable in our lives. You know, speaking of cognitive decline, how you take care of your brain is really important. And some of my most favorite nootropics of all time, uh, brain drugs, brain supplements so that I can think faster, have a better memory, better recall are from natural stacks. Two of my most favorite products. One of my most favorite is NeuroFuel, which is a nootropic that helps memory. Uh, it's all natural, open source. It's each batch is studied, uh, analyzed for purity. NeuroFuel is is my go-to when it comes to focus and memory, uh, and also mental stamina. Um, other than that, the opposite side of the spectrum is serotonin brain food. It's one of their most popular products. And it really does do a really nice job of increasing your level of natural serotonin creation. So if you're feeling a little bit low, if you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed, this is an incredible, incredible tool for you. You can go to naturalstacks.com and use the code OPP15 at checkout for 15% off. And, uh, And take care of your brain, everybody. All right. I will see you shortly and on the internet.